This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. On Monday, Libby welcomed the Zoomer Squad just a few hours after the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II. This historic event followed a lengthy period of mourning in Britain, which began after Her Majesty's death, September 8th. It also marked the beginning of some reassessment about the monarchy's role in Canadian life, as most of us had a deep respect for the Queen, who'd been present in most of our lives from the time we were born. Joining Fight Back with their reflections, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravit, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and John Wright, executive vice president of Maru Public Opinion. The monarchy may be anachronistic, it may be old and fashioned in a way that's ancient. But Queen Elizabeth, you know, from the Second World War on, was involved in so many lives um, and and stood the test of time. Uh, there's rarely a fault that could be leveled against her. And as the Archbishop of Canterbury said today during the service, I mean, she was 21 years of age when she gave a solemn promise to undertake that level of public service, and that there are few people who are able to keep that promise. And I just, I have a 21-year-old daughter, and I cannot imagine for a moment, although I think she would grow into the task, how <laughs> daunting that would have been, um, you know, for for a young woman to look forward and then to go through all of them. And just think of all the things we've been through since she's ascended the throne, and to keep that steady hand as the constitutional monarch, and to do it as well as she did. So I, I, I think that there are older people who will remember her, and maybe even personally, and the younger people who are attached to her identity because they've seen it so much. But when you strip away the rank and the order of the monarchy, she was a human being who performed her duties with impeccable order. You know, there are some things that you rarely hear discussed about the Queen, that when she became Queen and embarked on this really quite uh, pivotal, if ceremonial, role, there weren't a lot of other women around doing it. I mean, she was really on her own. It was before women prime ministers and and, uh, many women leaders. It's absolutely true. And... um the size and scope and the importance of the monarchy at that time, especially in a country like Canada, which the dominion of Canada, the presence of uh, royalty as an institution here. And now you take that from the point of view of London, a 21-year-old young woman in London looking out at Canada, Australia, the was still called the British Empire at that time. So it was a big, big role to fill. And as you say, there were no other uh, women uh, in that role. Fifteen prime ministers, phenomenal change. And she was like a constant. And I think a lot of the mourning, I think a lot of the outpouring of affection, people are almost mourning their own, you know, rites of passage and the, the parts of their own life because most of the people have not known any other uh, monarch. 
So it's like you're reflecting you're reflecting on her reign is to reflect on your own life in some ways because she was the, the constant. Peter, do you think that uh, the Zoomer generation has a special affinity for her or for the institution? Well, definitely for her because, uh, you know, every time uh, we check the traffic results on our postings on the Queen, they do, they perform better than almost anything else on our website. So um, there's a tremendous fascination with her still and, uh, you know, a respect from, from people of the, you know, of our demographic. Whether that respect translates to King Charles is another question, though. And uh, I know people are sort of uh, keeping their powder dry until the, um, until the funeral's over, but uh, I certainly don't think there will be the same level of affection uh, among our readers for King Charles and, uh, and especially Queen, or Queen Consort Camilla. And um, I... I think uh, I think it's going to be reflected in the in in the uh, you know the the level of coverage of the king and you know what what the you know the declining influence of the institution. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media, and John Wright, executive vice president of Maru Public Opinion, fight back's Monday Zoomer Squad. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Have you been out to a restaurant lately? It's one of the joys of life, dining out, especially after a long day of work. Even though most of us are now comfortable eating indoors, those in the restaurant industry are having a bleak and bumpy recovery. Restaurants Canada predicts a return to pre-pandemic sales levels this year, while 85% of owners of independent full-service restaurants took on new debt due to COVID. Couple that with high levels of labor vacancies and rising food costs due to inflation, and you have a restaurant industry struggling to pay back those debts because of low profitability. Joining Libby to discuss, Court Desotel of the Neighborhood Group of Companies, which operates four restaurants in Guelph and one in Kitchener, and James Rylett, Vice President of Central Canada for Restaurants Canada. What we found was most disturbing was what uh, we, we knew anecdotally from our members, but half, uh, 30% continue to lose money, and uh, almost half are, are just barely breaking even, so... Um, you know, the majority of the, almost the majority of restaurants still aren't making any money. That's, they're not able to pay their debt down and, uh, they're still in, in difficult times, even though, uh, um, the F- direct effects of the pandemic have, uh, passed. Uh, Court, uh, what are you finding in your restaurants? Are people back? Um, no, not quite, believe it or not. And what's the, the funny part is that we're, <clears throat> You know, we're seeing sales comparable to 2019, uh, summer, summer up to summer down. Uh, but that's all due to increased menu prices. Uh, the big piece is that our guest counts are still down and up to 20, 25% down. So we're seeing the sales, but not the guest counts. And the guest counts is what's the most concerning. And uh, why are the sales up? Because inflation is up and prices are higher or what? That's exactly it. So we're, you know, we've increased menu prices anywhere from, you know, five to 20% on some items just because of the increased cost that we're seeing uh, coming through uh, every, every day. It's, it's something different. And, and now it's almost, we're lucky to even get a product in the door, no matter what we're paying for it. Um, so we're not just dealing with inflationary pricing, but it's also 
labor shortages throughout the industry, and we're noticing that you know in every industry. Um, so <clears throat> trucks aren't showing up on time. Uh, products aren't uh, being picked in the fields, so they're not arriving. And so we've uh, yeah, we're in a really really tough spot right now because. You know, the, just the costs everywhere we look, and that's just not the the food costs. It's not just the labor costs, but it's even the plumbing costs and um, you know supplies uh, from every which way. We're seeing increases. What have your customers been telling you about the price increases? Do they understand and they're willing, or or uh, are they complaining? Um, it's a bit of a mix. And so I think at the beginning, when we started coming out of this, but, you know, kind of in the spring, I think everybody was very uh, just ecstatic to be out dining again. And now you're starting to see, we're starting to see some more uh, comments on on pricing. And where people were coming out for dinner, we didn't notice our dining times have shortened as well. So where people are coming out having a, you know, a couple drinks and an appetizer, main course, and maybe dessert. Now we're seeing it's, you know, maybe an appetizer, but not dessert, or it's just a main course, or maybe it's just an appetizer and, and uh, taking off. So, so it's been a really, you know, it's a really interesting thing to, to study in each of the restaurants. People were very accepting at the beginning, and then now they're, uh, we're getting a few more complaints about, uh, about costs. And James, what is the solution for the industry, and, and how do restaurateurs deal with the debt they have to pay back? Well, that's the big question. I, I think without we've we've said right from the start of the pandemic that this is not a short term thing. It's uh, in our industry, especially we're hit first, we're hit hardest, and we really need the government to continue to support our industry as we try and get through this. And and if there's ways of helping us pay pay down some of that debt so that a viable business uh, that is is working. Uh, Everything else being equal, and it just has to has to uh, um, pay down this debt. There's ways to help them. That that would be the best way to to go about it because there's too many other balls in the air right now, and uh, it, it's very hard to uh, juggle them all. James Rylett, Vice President of Central Canada for Restaurants Canada, and Court Desotel of the Neighborhood Group of Companies, which operates four restaurants in Guelph, one in Kitchener. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Coming up after the break, the Prime Minister's impromptu London lobby concert causes a ruckus in Britain. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. On Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. On Tuesday, when our recovering politicians joined Fight Back, we had just received the latest stressfully high inflation numbers, and there's an ongoing crisis in our health care system. But what were people talking about? Our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau singing with members of the Canadian delegation in the lobby of a London hotel two nights before the Queen's state funeral. Trudeau got a lot of flack for that on social media and from the British press. Libby asked our recovering politicians whether they think it's a scandal. Sherry DeNovos, former Ontario NDP MPP and a recipient of the Order of Canada. Hugh Siegel is a former Canadian senator. And David Peterson is a former Ontario Liberal Premier. I think this is so trivial. 
I think if anybody lets the British press, which is essentially venal, uh, there is, there's a quality press in Britain, but there's sure a tough press in Britain, let them let that press dictate their life. And the fact that we're so trivial as to as to even frankly talk about it today or worry about it, there's so many serious issues at play, and I say, isn't it fun to have some politicians with a little humanity, a little originality? And this scrutiny that almost appears to be coming from a bunch of uh, teetotalers is, it, it makes public life very hard for everybody, and it's one of the reasons people don't want to go into public life. This was very human, very natural, and I say God bless him. Uh, Hugh, I mean, on the other hand, he was there representing Canada at a somber occasion. A lot of people say he didn't, he didn't represent us well. Uh, do you agree with that? No, I don't. Um, I think in every circumstance where he was representing Canada, attending the funeral, attending the lying in state, um, meeting with um, His Majesty the King, meeting with the British Prime Minister, meeting with other uh, prime ministers from the Commonwealth. Uh, I think he did an outstanding job, and he was well prepared. The meetings were focused and constructive, and uh, I don't think we should. I think we should ignore it. And I, frankly, I would not want a prime minister who sat in his room reading briefing books when he could be for an hour or so relaxing with fellow Canadians who are in the same hotel for the same reason. So I, I don't take the criticism as serious, and no should, nor should anybody else. But let me give you, a, give you a prediction. Somebody in the House of Commons, in high dudgeon, will <laughs> rise and try to get their name on the front page of their local newspaper by making it into a huge issue, and I think they'll be laughed right off the stage by everybody, including the folks in their hometown. Sherry DeNovo, are, are you singing from the same hymn book as the guys? Uh, well, somebody who officiates at uh, memorials, funerals, and what is much more likely to be called a celebration of life these days, uh, you know, on a monthly basis probably, um, I, I would be, you know, honestly, I've never seen a reception after that is not joyous, that I've never seen a celebration of life that doesn't include some humor in it about the person's life. Um, I mean, this, this is, yes, I agree with the panelists. Listen, I would much rather have a prime minister who is not, I mean, this is not during the funeral or before the funeral. This was on his time off, sing with his, you know, on his day off, um, than a prime minister who'd be shaking hands with a white supremacist and never disavowed that. And I'm talking about, you know, who, who shook hands with Jeremy McKenzie, um, uh, you know, the, one of the leaders of Diagonal. So come on, um, press, wake up, get your acts together, uh, focus on what's important, and Libby said it better than anyone, and that's the healthcare crisis, the fact we can't afford food anymore. I mean, these are the issues that are, and certainly in Britain, their utility bills are the issues that the press should be focusing on, and not, um, you know, and not uh, Justin Trudeau singing a song with other, with the rest of the Canadian delegation on a night off, and quite frankly, a celebratory song 
by Queen. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I, I mean, this, this, is, this could be seen as being in her honor. So, I mean, honestly, it's ridiculous. Sherry DeNovo, former Ontario NDP MPP and recipient of the Order of Canada, Hugh Siegel, a former Canadian senator, and David Peterson, a former Ontario premier. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Canadians generally differ from many Americans when it comes to understanding the need for immigrants. According to the latest projection from Statistics Canada, our population will increase by 13 million over the next 19 years, and half of those people will be immigrant families. Libby spoke with two experts about this projection, Dr. Monica Boyd, professor of sociology at the U of T and the former research chair in immigration, inequality and public policy from 2001 to 2015, and Giddy Mammon, a Toronto immigration lawyer. We certainly didn't see a lot of travel, but the, the uh, immigration department certainly has increased the number of permanent residents coming to Canada. Uh, for, the, for the very large bar- bulk of my uh, 35 years in practice, the annual intake was about, uh, let's say, around 250,000 new permanent residents a year. Uh, but in recent years, we're doing 300 and 400,000 uh, per year uh, since the current government uh, came into power. Uh, and so that's a significant increase. Uh, of course, you know, you also have to take a look at the people who leave Canada at the same time to see what your net gain or loss is per year. And you, you always have to remember that there's always going to be some Canadians uh, immigrating abroad for all kinds of reasons, for career for career paths, or you know when they get married to foreign nationals, sometimes they move abroad. Uh, so that's the situation from a po- from the point of view of immigration. We're definitely up on permanent residence in the last year or two. Uh huh. And what about backlogs? Backlogs, uh, you know, obviously during the pandemic, uh, there just wasn't the human resources to uh, punch out a lot of the visas. Uh, that people are applying for. So a lot of that work is backlogged. That's on top of the, uh, what I would describe as unacceptable backlogs before the pandemic. Um, in terms of immigration and other immigration services, for example, uh, immigration hearings, refugee hearings, uh, immigration appeals, there's a lot of backlog in the immigration business. Uh, but it's uh, really become a problem since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, that and so much else. Dr. Boyd, uh, what do you make of this projection by StatsCan? Will, uh, do you think that 13 million will actually happen and, and will that fulfill our needs? The projection is a sound projection, but it's also based on a number of underlying assumptions, which is, uh, will future, uh, governments uh, regardless of what the political stripes are that they're wearing, continue those policies. Policies are, are, are often, particularly in immigration, and I think my colleague would agree with me, are also, uh, they're often dialed back uh, or they're changed. Uh, they're usually seen as highly responsive to the immediate moment. So we don't have a guarantee that the current Standard, which is now 450,000 immigrants a year, is going to persist in the long term. If it does persist, then those uh, underlying results that are discussed, which is uh, growing diversity in the Canadian population, increased uh, differentiation among uh, uh, cities and, and by city size, uh, are possibilities. They're not assured 
they're simply the model is simply a demographic one. It takes nothing. It doesn't take into account uh, a whole variety of issues that have to do with local immigrant local immigration settlement policies, uh, economic policies, and the like. Government has always um, prided itself um, on having an immigration policy that brings in, and I quote, the brightest and the bright, the, 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 the brightest and the best. Um, but that definition is very problematic because we can't all be professors. We can't all be doctors and lawyers and engineers. Uh, every economy requires people at all sectors of the, um, of the uh, economy uh, in terms of our workforce. Um, right now, we don't have health care workers. We don't have people who can uh, take care of our children, people who can build our houses and cut our lawns and do all kinds of things that we are accustomed to. And that's because I think we have a very weak immigration policy when it comes to that area and that need for Canadians. Giddy Mammon, a Toronto immigration lawyer, and Dr. Monica Boyd, professor of sociology at the U of T and former research chair in immigration, inequality, and public policy between 2001 and 2015. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Uma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was in the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Bob in Richmond Hill called in during the Trudeau singing segment. There is a time and place for celebrations and the way you're acting. But I believe now, you've got to be fair, right? Nothing wrong in having a drink and having a few laughs with your colleagues. Now, if it was Doug Ford, what would people be saying? Brian in Brampton has a theory about rising prices. I'd like to point out that part of our inflation problem is caused by these rewards programs that different companies run. They have to raise their prices to cover those PC points or whatever they're called, the air miles. If you can fly somewhere on air miles or exchange it for some other good or product, that's the same as money, and that's causing inflation. Kathy in Mississauga explained how she shops. I'm, I'm an avid. I literally go through every flower, flyer every week. Um, and, I mean, now there isn't so many. So for anybody that's less fortunate that don't have iPad or something, then you're really lost. And, yes, a lot of things has more than doubled. Um, I just realized on the weekend I needed crackers, and I use Premium Plus. I used to get them for five twenty nine. They're now anywhere from six forty nine wow. up to eight ninety nine, and eight ninety nine is at uh, Loblaw stores. Like so many, Deborah Natobico says the prices have forced her to pass on some items. I was out shopping last night, and I needed green onions for a recipe, and they were a dollar sixty seven. Mm-hmm. And I decided to pass because I know that the store I'd gone to the day before were selling them for seventy nine cents. And the other thing I find that I've got an adult son now living with me, 
and uh, we go through bread. You know, he has his bread, I have my bread. And the bread is like $12 a week just for bread. And I, so I decided that I was going to bake bread, so I've been doing that now. Joseph in Toronto can't figure why anyone would pay that much for bread. You could do a lot. I mean, watch all those specialty. You were talking about bread earlier. There's a place in Thornhill. For heaven's sake, they're selling a loaf of bread for $12. That's ridiculous. But, um, you know, shop at the uh, less known stores. Uh, there's lots of great sales out there. Change your diet, eat less meat, and stop eating so frequently at restaurants. Sean in Burlington has one concern about the proposed dental plan and having to make a choice between it and food prices. It seems like they're going at it very fast. I, I like to see people get coverage, but the speed is concerning. And the other question is, what are private insurance companies going to do now? Are they going to say, well, you're covered by the government, so we no longer are going to cover your kids and still reap the benefits of private insurance? I hope it works out, and I hope people are, are better off and served up. I do worry about the speed and the efficiency. And if I was hungry and I had to choose between food for my family and dental care, with that money, I would take the food, right? And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Ron in Guelph, who called about Prime Minister Trudeau singing in London ahead of the Queen's funeral. You know, this is such a trivial thing. I'm not a great fan of Justin Trudeau's policies, but uh, something was lost in this thing, and it was alluded to with the Queen and Paddington Bear, that she herself had a great sense of humor. So I can't see that she would have disapproved of this. And as I said, it's the British press that's making a big deal out of this, and that should be the end of it. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime, 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.